John chapter 7. Let's dive right into the text. Beginning with verse 1, John writes that after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. I'd say that's a good reason. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And Jesus' brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds, For even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. If you were to break down Jesus' roughly two to three year ministry, And you were to break it into three very simple elementary categories. It would be as follows. Year one, you would call a period of obscurity. Jesus, largely an unknown quantity outside of the region of Galilee. Year number two, the year that follows, you would title a period of popularity. This was the season where Jesus was known, popular, drawing large crowds and followings wherever he went. Year three, this final third year, you would title a period of opposition. So we go from obscurity to popularity to opposition. This year, ultimately, would conclude with Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his torture, and crucifixion. Now as we transition from John 6 to 7, It's important you note two important things. First, several months have transpired and Jesus' ministry has shifted from the season of popularity to now one of opposition. We actually pointed out last Sunday how many of Jesus' disciples had begun to bail on him because of some of the offensive things that he was now teaching. No doubt that trend continued. According to verse 1, the dynamic had become so volatile that Jesus even refuses to venture down into Judea at all, choosing instead to remain in the Galilee. John explains that the reason for this decision, his approach, was on account that the Jews, and and this is likely the religious authorities, sought to kill Jesus. This word sought. It suggests both an active and a deliberate seeking to find. They were like a heat-seeking missile looking for him with evil intent. The second thing you should keep in mind is that in many ways, John 7 marks the beginning of the end. Now, while a simple reading of this gospel wouldn't naturally indicate this reality, and keep in mind that John is not interested in presenting for us a strict chronological uh, presentation or record of events. But as we move from one chapter to the next, Not only do we find ourselves several months removed from the Bread of Life discourse, but John picks up the narrative roughly six months into this final period of opposition. So the two things to keep in mind is from chapter 6 to chapter 7, six months have transpired. Additionally, we are now six or seven months into this final period of Jesus' life. Verse 2 is important. For in verse 2, John gives you and I a very specific context and timeline by referencing here the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Since this final feast to the Jewish calendar occurred late September, early October, after the harvest, Feast of Tabernacles, with the Feast of Passover coming next in sequence, but the following April, we know that the last 15 chapters of John's Gospel fill this period of time from the Feast of Tabernacles to the Feast of Passover, from October to April, which is where we get this six to seven month time frame. It's interesting that as John dives into this period of opposition, I mean headlong, he begins with Jesus' brothers coming to him with a challenge rooted in skepticism. Now, I, I should make sure you're aware that Jesus was not an only child. According to Matthew chapter 13, we know that Jesus had four brothers, their names being James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, along with, according to Matthew 13, unnamed sisters, plural. So at least four brothers and two sisters. Technically, if you want to be uh, specific, they were half-siblings. They all shared the same mom, but undoubtedly had different fathers. Now, before we get to their challenge, we should first address the nature of their skepticism. It's a challenge rooted in skepticism. In verse 5, John makes it clear that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Now, to begin with, you can imagine, <laughs> imagine for a minute, the difficulties of having Jesus as your big brother. I mean, if you think your family dynamic was difficult, let's say you're a middle child, you've been in years of therapy trying to get over it, imagine having Jesus as your big bro. The unfair comparisons alone would have been enough to foster kind of a deep-seated resentment. James, why can't you make your bed as well as your brother Jesus? James is looking around like, well, um, I'm not the creator and sustainer of the universe. I think he's got a leg up on me. Simon, why can't you get your homework done as quickly as your brother Jesus? Um, maybe it's because I'm not all-knowing. Joseph and Jude, why can't you guys behave like your brother Jesus? Um, Maybe the whole, like, we're not sinless, and he is? He's got an advantage. Like, for the younger siblings of God incarnate, like, it's easy to understand how the why can't you be like Jesus parental approach would have been grating and frustrating and yielded some type of resentment. Beyond this, it's important to consider what exactly they didn't believe about Jesus. For starters, I think it's a leap to conclude that their unbelief was rooted in some type of hidden character flaw that they were only privy to because, well, you know, they were family. Like, no, they're not accusing Jesus of anything. They're not accusing him of being a fraud. They're not accusing him of being a hypocrite. Like, instead, it would appear that their unbelief concerning Jesus stemmed from a deeper misunderstanding as to the fundamental purpose and mission of what the Messiah, 
the Christ had actually come to accomplish. These men, like many others, by the way, believed that the Messiah was going to rally the Jewish people together, rally them to arms, and lead a violent revolution against the occupying Romans. That was their presentation, their viewpoint, their conclusions about the Messiah. And and because these men, his brothers, knew Jesus' personality and temperament better than anyone else, it's likely they just couldn't believe that Jesus could even do such a thing. Like the, the idea of Jesus swinging a sword, taking lives, seemed like an outlandish proposition. If that's what the Messiah was going to be, eh, he couldn't be Jesus. They knew Jesus just wasn't cut from that particular cloth. Now, in an interesting twist to this point, if these brothers had known that the Messiah had instead come to lay down his life for the sins of the world, that the Messiah came to be first a suffering servant, I believe that their position would have probably changed, and here's why. That view of the Christ would have been more in line with what they knew about their big brother Jesus. And I think that point's actually provable. Consider that 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told that the resurrected Jesus, he appears to over 511 people, one of which we're told was his brother James. Imagine that moment. That meet and greet. I'm going to talk about awkward. Following Jesus' crucifixion and then his resurrection, these men, these brothers, these original doubters became instant believers. James, as mentioned, would end up becoming the pastor of the first church there in Jerusalem and would pen the epistle of James, which is in your Bible. Additionally, Jude, another of Jesus' half-brothers, would pen another letter to the church at large, which is also included in canon. And yet at this moment, these brothers were far from believers. Seeing that Jesus was avoiding the crowds in Jerusalem, they come to him and they challenge Jesus. They encourage him to go to Judea and perform the same miracles there as he had been doing in the Galilee. They add, no one does anything in secret while he seeks to be known openly And then they say, show yourself to the world. Sadly, they didn't understand that the mission of their brother Jesus wasn't predicated upon a growing popularity. These things Jesus wasn't concerned with at all. Again, with their understanding of the Messiah in mind, such counsel would have been logical and even warranted. you got to develop a following if you're going to rally troops, if you're going to lead a revolution. And though they were personally skeptical, what they are is they're advising Jesus to go into Judea, specifically Jerusalem, and reveal himself as the Messiah during the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, verse 6, Jesus said to them, here's his retort, My time has not yet come, but your time is is always ready. The world cannot hate you, Jesus said, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going, for my time has not yet fully come. And when Jesus had said these things, he remained 
in Galilee. You know, I think it's, it's, it's a provocative thought. But don't miss kind of an overarching idea being presented in the text. The fact that there were people, lots of them, who actually hated Jesus so much that they wanted to kill him. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Jesus. People wanted to kill him because they hated him. And what's more is I'm struck by the reality that the folks that were filled with such rage that they were out for blood were the religious people of the day. Don't let that go in one ear and out the other. And consider for just a minute what Jesus had done to deserve such vitriol. First, he was completely sinless and without fault and blame. You know, grounds for for murder. I mean, second, you know, his crime was teaching the truth of God's word to the masses. How dare he? Third, Jesus, brace yourself for this, he was accepting of the outcasts of society. Worthy of the sword. Beyond that, he befriended and ministered to sinners. Appalling. Five, he, he cast demons out of people, thereby freeing them of internal torment. Six, Jesus restored sight to the blind. People trapped in darkness, he gave light. Seven, Jesus returned the ability to speak and hear to the mute. Eight, he liberated people who had been alienated by the death sentence brought with leprosy. Nine, he caused the lame to walk and fixed the the withered limbs of the handicapped. Throw that guy in jail. Ten, Jesus would stay up to the wee, wee hours of the night, healing anyone who came with physical infirmities. Eleven, he forgave sins of the condemned, encouraged people to walk in righteousness. Twelve, he filled broken lives with an eternal purpose. Thirteen, he selflessly preferred the needs of others above himself of his own. 14, the high crime and misdemeanor that he enjoyed food and drink. I mean, obviously, I could go on and on and on, listing all of the justifiable reasons you should kill someone. The truth is there really is no logical reason or justifiable reason to hate Jesus so much that you would want to kill him. I mean, really, what did he do? Jesus had committed no crime worthy of such a reaction by anyone. Now, before I get to to my main point, I do want to say that if this morning you're resisting Jesus for whatever reason, I, I want you to consider what has Jesus actually done to you to warrant your opposition? Like, really, take some time and think about it. Now, in the flow of our text, the fundamental question that does arise is why was hatred towards Jesus the response of these religious leaders? And to answer that question, we turn to Jesus and what he says in verse 7. Look at it again. He says, the world hates me. And then why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. There's the reason. Understand that for the secular man, 
actively doing his best to deny the presence of God at all, the very person of Jesus becomes a threat because Jesus testifies that their works are evil or literally of a bad nature. Because Jesus establishes the essence of what is right and what is wrong. The secular man is no longer free or comfortable just to do whatever he pleases. Frankly, it's the secular man that hates Jesus because they hate the idea of there being divine accountability. And while I think, to a large extent, that's self-evident, the fact remains that it was the religious leaders, not the secular men, who hated him enough to want to kill him. You know, though the secular man may hate Jesus for the reasons I just stated, more often than not, their strategy is not to kill Jesus, especially when you can just ignore him. Most interestingly, though, that approach is not an option for the religious man or woman. Here's the difference. The reason Jesus is hated by religious people and cannot be ignored centers on the reality that Jesus' very presence establishes a new basis for what is fundamentally good. Think of it this way. Carnal people hate Jesus because he points out the evil nature of their works. And yet, that can be ignored. But in contrast, religious people hate Jesus because he points out their good works are evil. And you can't ignore that. Like the fact is that deeply religious people build their own moral framework for goodness. And therefore the basis of their self-rightness. They build these things upon an inaccurate comparison of themselves and what they define as being clearly evil. This is how the structure works. Basically, the common claim, I'm a good person. And all the pride that comes with that is really founded upon the idea that, <laughs> that I'm better than you. It's moral comparison. I pick out what's evil, I compare myself to it, I conclude I'm good. Here's why Jesus is hated and impossible to ignore in this circumstance. The very presence of a sinless, perfect human being existing now as the natural basis for what is defined as being good blows the entire moralistic framework to bits. Consider, how can anyone honestly claim to be a good person when Jesus is the standard bearer for what a good person is? You see, in light of Jesus and the life that he lived, even religious people must conclude that their works are evil in comparison to Jesus. This is why the religious world in Jesus' day hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. Jesus' very presence testified, gave witness that their works, the works they found so much personal pride in, their attempts to be good, to earn the favor of God, the basis for what made them better than others. Jesus' presence testified that those things 
weren't good, they were evil. And that reality hit them deeply. Jesus' life demonstrated that their best works to please God fell terribly short. Instead of them being able to prop up an, an us versus them attitude, fostered through a, 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 religious, a religious person's false sense of, of moral rightness. We the good, them the bad. When Jesus is around, categories change, don't they? Instead of us and them, you know, Christians and the sinners. When Jesus is around, there's only two categories of humanity, him and everyone else. Like we're all equally messed up in comparison to Jesus. If Jesus is the perfect standard for what is good, we all fall short of the glory of God. And if you don't know, that's a verse. Beyond that, if you're not willing to admit it, that your best isn't good enough, that you've fallen short, that you're unable, you'll end up reacting with hatred and vitriol towards Jesus. Simply ignoring him isn't an option. Now before we move further into the chapter, Jesus introduces an interesting idea that he's going to repeat not just throughout this chapter, but throughout the remaining 15 chapters of John's gospel. He says to his brothers, you know, they want him to go from Galilee to Judea to reveal himself. And Jesus replies with this line, my time has not yet come. We're going to find this repeated over and over and over again by Jesus. My time has not yet come. My time, Jesus, my time has not yet come. He's going to repeat this line all the way up so when he goes to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, when he'll now declare, my time has come. So we see this line, my, my time has not yet come, until he's like, yo, neon sign, my time is here. Now, aside from the fact that we understand Jesus is speaking of the moment that he'd submit himself to, to currents that would ultimately lead at a cross, what makes this statement so fascinating is that it reveals, in a, in a very simple way, actually, the reality that Jesus always remains sensitive to a divine timetable for his life. People wanted him to do something, man, man my time has not yet come. But Jesus said, no. Jesus was sensitive to this. Like, Jesus lived and made decisions, not according to the whims of men or even his own proclivity, but according to an internal clock that had been set and was controlled by his heavenly Father. Jesus was willing to surrender to this and patiently allow God's plan for his life to happen according to God's timing. Can I say that if submitting to God's will and God's plan for his life was critically important for Jesus that there is no question that same approach is important for you and I? Like, never forget. God's work failed to be done according to God's timing will rarely receive God's blessing. God's work must be done in God's timing for God to bless it. I bring this up because it was such a heavenly perspective 
that enabled Jesus to wisely choose when to engage a fight and when to avoid one. Jesus knowing the intended purposes of his enemies. He wisely decides here to hold back. You guys go. I'm staying here for a little while. Now, keep in mind, Jesus didn't avoid confrontation as if opposing forces could trump God's will for his life. And yet Jesus never rushed into a situation or a debate where in rushing, he would surrender the vantage point of higher ground. And you know, as we try to navigate personally, this cultural cesspool around us, I think there's a lot of wisdom to Jesus' example. Before you tweet, take a minute and think. You know, we tell our kids, you know, think before you speak. To our culture, tweet, uh, think before you tweet. Or post something on Facebook. It's, it's, it's easy to bloviate to your spouse about politics. But just take a minute. Just think it through. This week, I deleted more tweets I wanted to send out than I actually sent. Think. There's wisdom in this. Well, verse 10. When Jesus' brothers had gone up, check this out, then Jesus goes up to the feast. John adds, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Jesus had a plan, right? Then the Jews sought him at the feast, and they said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. This, this word complaining, it's actually a very poor translation. It, it was better as murmuring or debating. There was a lot of debating going on about Jesus. Some said that he is good. Others said, no, the contrary. He deceives the people. He's a liar. However, no one spoke openly of Jesus for the fear of, of the Jews, the religious leaders. Verse 14, now, about the middle of the feast, Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll get to this next Sunday. It lasted for eight days. But Jesus at this point went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? And again, this is a terrible translation from the Greek into English. The, the better translation would be something to the effect of, how does Jesus have such a mastery over the scriptures? Well, verse 16, Jesus answered and said, My doctrine, that's the word doctrine, diadache. It means what is taught. What I'm teaching, it's not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine or what is being taught, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Now one of the grand mysteries about Jesus in his day was the origins of his incredible understanding and mastery of the scriptures. Well, there was a formal educational process that had to be completed. And then the requirement that you had to apprentice under a rabbi before you could be a rabbi 
Jesus had none of this. At least we're not told of any of it in the scriptures. In another gospel account, in kind of a measure of mockery, Jesus is referred to, not as the rabbi of Nazareth, but what? The carpenter. How can this, how can this beatnik, this roughneck, this construction worker, have such a mastery of the scriptures? He hasn't gone to our seminaries. He hasn't apprenticed under our great thinkers. How in the world does this guy know what he knows? This is the mystery of the day. And while it's true that Jesus didn't have a formal training, the proof of his learning was unavoidable. Like no one during Jesus' day demonstrated a level of knowledge and insight into the Old Testament scriptures than Jesus. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, we're told, even of the skeptics, that they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Amazed, flabbergasted. And then they add, for Jesus taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. A little later in this very chapter, officers that are sent to arrest Jesus come back and they're like, yeah, we couldn't do it. And they're like, why didn't you arrest Jesus? And their answer, dude, no man has ever spoken like this man. Now in answering their inquiry about the origins of his educational training, Jesus does make here a radical series of important statements for us. First, Jesus begins, look at it, my doctrine is not mine, but his, speaking of God, who sent me. See, Jesus is saying here, right from the jump, that the origins of what he taught the people came from God and not himself. Because Jesus was sent by God, he's wanting the audience to know with certainty that he came with words from God. I've been sent from God with a message from God. It wasn't his message. It wasn't his doctrine. It was God's that Jesus was communicating to the people. And to validate that claim, Jesus provides a litmus test that the people then and us can use in order to ascertain whether or not what he's actually teaching is from God or based, quote, on his own authority. Jesus continues, look at it. I find this to be a very fascinating passage of Scripture. He says, if anyone wills, this word wills is thelo means intends. If anyone intends, desires, to do God's will, it's a different word for will. Thelma. It can be translated as what God wishes. So if anyone intends to do what God wishes, then he shall know concerning the doctrine, or what I'm teaching, whether it is from God, or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, Jesus is saying the evidence that he was speaking the true words of God and not his own opinions could be discovered, could be realized through one's obedience to what he was saying. Don't miss the underlying principle. The only way that you can ever really know for certain whether or not Jesus' words have come directly from God. The only way you can really know is to test them by obeying them. 
Jesus is saying, if you really want to know, I'm communicating a message from God and not my own. Do this. Take what I'm saying, put it into practice. If it works, then you know. If it doesn't work, then you know. Like, in many ways, this concept substantiates the idea that true spiritual growth and personal transformation, what we all want, is completely relative to your obedience of the Scriptures. Taking what Jesus' his words say and living by them. Like, for example, it doesn't take you very long to attend Calvary 316 to know I'm a big advocate of God's grace. I talk a lot about the doctrine of grace. And yet, the only way that you can test whether or not what I'm telling you about grace is simply my thoughts or the Word of God is to take that doctrine and apply it to your life experientially. Take what I'm saying and put it to the test. You know, I can talk to you extensively about, hey, the mysterious and largely counterintuitive blessing the Bible says comes into a person's life when they commit to tithing a percentage of their income. I, I can talk to you about that till I'm blue in the face. I can show you all the passages of Scripture. We can go through them together. But the only way that you'll ever really know what I'm saying whether I'm just trying to get your money or I'm actually telling you something that God has established in his word is to take it and just try it. On a side note, I've never met someone. I've been doing this a long time. I've never met someone that tried to outgive God and was worse for it. Like I've never met, I've, I've met people that are like, man, tithing is hard, bro. I was like, yeah, I know totally with you. But I've never met someone that's like, you know, I've made this a discipline in, in, in my life, the life of our family, and you know what? It was the worst decision I've ever made. I mean, we don't even eat anymore. Like, I've never met that person. Don't take my word for it. it, it test it. Is Zach talking about money just because we got some electricity bills coming? Or is he actually trying to communicate something that's a truth? Is it God or Zach? Put it to the test. They're doing that in children's ministry. I can emphasize the powerful spiritual influence and stability that will result when you commit your family to faithfully attending church. Like, I can talk about what happens in the life of your family when you make attending church a priority. I can talk to you about it until I'm blue in the face. But you will never really know if what I'm saying is true or a ploy unless you're willing to actually give it a whirl. Test and see. I can preach about the personal liberation of pain and resentment that will flow into your life when you take the bold step of truly forgiving someone who's wronged you. And yet, those words are powerless. Actually, just an academic exercise 
until you're actually willing to attempt to forgive. Most Sundays, I declare that God's grace changes everything. I believe it so much, we put it on a t-shirt, gave them away. But you have no idea if I'm lying to you or speaking truth if you're not willing to step out and open up yourself to experience the grace of God. How do you know if it changes everything if you're not willing to engage it? Frankly, I've also found it almost impossible for someone to really understand the doctrine of grace if they haven't experienced it by receiving it when they didn't deserve it or choosing to bestow it to someone who didn't deserve it. Some things you have to learn by putting them into practice. And this is what Jesus is articulating. Now, there's one more component to this that I, I really can't overlook. It was important to Jesus, don't miss this, it was important to Jesus that from the pulpit he articulated a word from God and not a message contrived in himself. Did you kind of pick that up? That was important to Jesus, which blows my mind because Jesus is actually God. But I think there's an example here. You see, as a pastor, I believe the easiest way to ensure you know I'm delivering a message from God and not myself is to simply articulate God's word. Kind of the easiest way. You want to know that God's speaking? Well, we'll look at God's word. Additionally, if you want to make sure a message you hear is from God, examine how much of his word is included. Finally, Jesus gives one more proof as to whether or not a person is articulating a message from God or speaking under his own authority. He wraps up this thought by saying, he who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one, capital O, who sent him, God, seeks God's glory is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. You see, when it's all said and done, a word from God will exalt and bring public glory to the God behind the word and not the conduit. And on the flip side, a word from man will exalt and bring public glory to the man speaking the word because God was never behind it. If you want to know what's really happening, just take a peek at who's being glorified. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, Jesus said, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Knowing the opposition is likely present, right? As Jesus is publicly teaching in the temple. Jesus seizes on the opportunity to strike the first blow. And what does he do? He points out their obvious hypocrisy. Like how ironic that the men who boasted in their ability to keep the law were actively looking for a way to kill him. Jesus is like, last I checked, that's like one of the big ten. Murder. This word kill, it implies premeditated murder. Well, the people answered, verse 20, and they said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And this is evidence that the masses were largely ignorant of the plot of the religious leaders. But Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marveled. Now, let me give you a little context to what one work he's referring to. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem in John's gospel, John 5, 
what did he do? He went to the pool of Bethsaida near the Sheep Gate, and he healed the man that had the infirmity for 38 years. He did that when? On the Sabbath day. Big source of contention and fallout as a result. So this is what Jesus is going to address. He says, I did one work, and you all marveled. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, (laughs) not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. And an attempt to reason with the religious men enraged and seemingly still irked by the fact that Jesus actually was audacious enough to heal someone on the Sabbath, he points out to these men a glaring illogic to their argument. According to the law, a Hebrew boy was required to be circumcised on the eighth day. Even if the eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath, Saturday. Now, while the Sabbath was to be kept holy, no work, the importance of circumcision to the Hebrew culture would take priority and a concession made. So circumcision would happen on the Sabbath in that situation. Now, Jesus' point here is that if such an exemption was allowed pertaining to circumcision, what could possibly be wrong with him making a man completely well on the Sabbath? This is Jesus' point. This is illogical and silly. Even the Jews knew that it was entirely legal to break the Sabbath in order to address a more pressing need. Again, you could argue a man who had been inflicted with an infirmity for 38 years would be a large enough pressing need to violate their little Sabbath deal. Now this line, not to judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment, is also fascinating. Contrary to those who love to tell Christians that it's wrong to judge others. Don't judge me, bro. Jesus here, like you see it, you read it. Jesus is is articulating that he sees no issue with the idea of judging and is instead more interested in the way that we judge. While it's wrong to judge a situation according to just the appearance, literally this word appearance is, is opsis, or the word we get optics from. He's saying what you physically see. It is within your right and even responsibility, according to Jesus, to judge as long as it's with a righteous judgment. This word righteous, I love this word. It means observing divine lines. Jesus' point is that as Christians, we are called, and it's our responsibility to take situations, sometimes even people, and make judgments about them, not by what we see, but in accordance to what the scriptures say. We judge with righteousness. We observe divine lines. Now, some of them, verse 25 from Jerusalem, said, 
Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, Jesus speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, as it pertained to those who were listening, who knew the religious leaders were working this plot to kill Jesus, they find themselves amazed, not only by Jesus' boldness, but also by the religious leaders in action. Like, amazingly, some saw this dynamic as maybe even being evidence that the religious leaders weren't arresting Jesus because they knew deep down that Jesus was truly the Christ. Others, though, remained skeptical. John records that one such argument against Jesus centered on a passage in Malachi 3 that describes the suddenness of the Messiah's appearing. Since they assumed they knew where Jesus was from, they had a difficult time believing he was the Messiah on this basis. But Jesus cries out, verse 28, as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Now, I don't, pres- I, I don't profess to be a Greek scholar. But those who are Greek scholars claim that this first line and the original language oozes with sarcasm. This line, you know me and you know where I am from, is totally sarcastic. Like responding to the claims of those who were doubting because they thought they knew Jesus and where he was from. He's kind of saying, you think you know me? You think you know where I'm from? Friend, I am more mysterious than you could ever imagine. And that's kind of what he articulates. Wrapping things up, verse 31. And many of the people believed in Jesus and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Basically saying, like, what are we expecting from the Messiah? Because this is pretty, pretty legit. And the Pharisees, they heard the crowd murmuring, these things concerning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, that line, where I am, you cannot come, is very weird. It's in the present tense. He's he's saying, where I am right now, yeah, you can't come. You can't come to that place. And the the Jews, they realize how bizarre it is because they said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? This is the Jews spread out into the Roman Empire and teach them. What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Again, reaffirming that what Jesus is saying here is bizarro. And I have no idea what he means. If you figure it out, let me know. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to leave it there. But that said, in closing, there is one dominant thread to this passage I want to I emphasize. There is no question people who encounter Jesus grappled with his true identity. You pick that theme up 
as Jesus is teaching, the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, people are, are debating, they're talking, they're trying to figure it out. Like, there was a group that, that, yeah, they reasoned Jesus was the Christ. But then there were others that were like, Jesus is a good man. And others were like, no, he's not, he's a liar. And then there were even some that were like, he's not even just a liar. That dude is demon-possessed. I mean, they're all trying to figure out, who is this dude? Now, what's interesting is at first, they all did reach a conclusion. Right or wrong, they all reached a conclusion. You can't step back if you've encountered Jesus and not reach a conclusion of some kind. And may I ask, what conclusions about Jesus have you reached? But I will say this, of all of the opinions that we just read about, all the opinions of the crowd that day, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is a good man, Jesus is a liar, Jesus is demon-possessed, of all of those, the one conclusion that was the most illogical of all, the one conclusion you can't reach, is that Jesus was just a good man. You want to look at Jesus and be like, that dude's possessed. Okay. That dude's a liar. Okay. He's the Christ. Yeah, sure. The one thing you can't in encountering Jesus conclude is that he's just a good man. I will close with a statement that C.S. Lewis makes in his famous book, Mere Christianity. He writes the following. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, Christ, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who, merely, a, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice about Jesus. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or else worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with, with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. And so, Father Lord, with that, we let those words ring true.